Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Wee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Graber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are continuing our NBA season preview content. This will now be our third division and we'll be talking about the Southwest. Unfortunately, we couldn't wrap up the Eastern Conference on this one, which would have been the Atlantic division that we would have talked about. Just because, again, we're trying to avoid Ben Simmons stuff until it's absolutely necessary because it really, really does seem like he's going to get traded. So, we're moving on to the West here. Obviously, we'll come back around and wrap it all up with the Eastern Conference later. Hopefully, once something has been decided with that. But if not, hey, we'll just do it whenever we have to do it. For now, though, we're going to talk about the division that he is very likely not to be traded to in the Western Conference. And that is, again, the Southwest. So, Logan, I'll throw it over to you to start here, as always, who do you have atop this division? Well, it's the guy uh, in the jersey I'm wearing. It's the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, and I don't really think it's close. I think there's definitely a really steep gap between the Mavs and the other teams in this division simply because, you know, they've got a top 10 player in basketball in their team and the rest of these guys don't. Um, I think it's this. Uh, I think it's the Mavs division to lose. And barring Luka, you know, not staying healthy or something like that, uh, I, like I said, I really don't think the competition is close. And I mean, it's just a really replicable uh, formula on offense. Uh, Luca is one of the most transcendent players that we've ever seen offensively alongside a bunch of really good catch-and-shooters. Uh, Maxi Kleba, over 40% catch-and-shoot last season. Tim Hardaway Jr., who they just extended over 40% uh, catch-and-shoot last season. Jalen Brunson, 43% catch-and-shoot last season. And then, you know, Kristaps uh, and Dorian Finney-Smith, both over 38%. You add in another 40% catch-and-shooter in Reggie Bullock. You've got a, you know some really good rim runners here in Dwight Powell, Willie Cauley-Stein, Moses Brown, if they give him some burn. So, I mean, offensively, the Mavericks are going to be a powerhouse once again. And if you can't keep up with them offensively, they're going to run you you know out of the room. And how many close games did we see last season with Dallas where Luka edged them out? If it was him carrying them across the finish line in the fourth quarter, just taking possessions by himself and scoring or, you know, closing games out with, you know, some miraculous game-winning shots. Um, 
just offensively, the Mavericks are going to be damn near unstoppable. But I do think there's some swing guys here, Carson. I think the big thing for me, if we want to see the Mavs take that next step, obviously, number one is if Luka somehow gets even better, which I think is, to me, it's, I can't conceive it, Carson. Like, what we saw to Luka was unbelievable last season, so if he does get better, I think my head's just going to explode. Like, I, I, can't, I can't imagine Luka playing any better than he did last season, but I think there's room for growth in this bench, especially uh, Josh Green, you know, a season under his belt of practicing, of getting ready, uh, was not effective at all in the minutes he got last season, did not look ready to play on an NBA floor, I believe, with 17% off the catch last year. Just not what you want out of a player, you know, in that 3 and D mold that they expect him to be. A guy like Tyrell Terry, I hope, can play some minutes in this rotation off the bench. It is a steep guard rotation with Brunson, with Trey Burke. Um, you know, w- With them adding Nidalekina in here, he's probably still better than Tyrell Terry at this moment. But there's some young guys who I think can swing it. But regardless, um, like I said, I mean, offensively, they're going to be dominant. And I think there's just, they're a pretty decently, uh, they're a pretty decent team depth-wise. Uh I don't know, man. The Mavs are just going to be dominant offensively, and it's going to be hard to hard to keep up with them. Yeah, as has been the case for the past couple of years. And last year, they weren't able to replicate their success as the greatest statistical offense of all time from the year prior. But this is basically last year's team that we're looking at, in essence, with some minor changes in personnel. You lose J.J. Redick, who was a nice addition as a spot-up shooter. Obviously, he's now retired. You lose Josh Richardson, who... Had a mixed bag of a year, I guess I would say, if I'm being generous, was really just kind of a flat-out disappointment. Never found his rhythm, never really found his shot within this offense. Got better as the year went along, but got off to an atrocious start. And I think he's going to do better, personally, in Boston than he did in Dallas, because I think he's still a talented basketball player, but it just never worked here. And then you add, as you mentioned, Reggie Bullock, who is going to effectively fill that 3 and D role at a pretty high level, and we'll see if he starts or not. But regardless, the roster is very similar. And I think that we are aware of what makes this team what it is. First off, as you said, it is Luka Doncic being right up there in the conversation for the best one-man offensive engine in all of basketball. And you said it. You put shooters around him. As we've seen, the Mavs were sixth and three-pointers attempted last year. Just quality shooting around him means you are going to have a great offense. And you talk about where they could possibly grow and where Luka can possibly grow. And I have to say, I'm kind of with you. He is a nearly perfect offensive player at this point. And two years ago, I don't even know if you could have said that was the case. He was phenomenal. He was the best 20-year-old we had ever seen. But the addition that he made to his in-between game, to his mid-range capabilities, to his dominance out of the post, like... If you just run down everything that a lead ball handler, that a lead scorer, that a lead playmaker can be asked to do offensively, Luka does it as well as almost anybody. 36% on step back threes last year, obviously at a very high volume. And in the playoffs, had a performance there like, frankly, I don't know I've ever seen before. 56% on floaters. Might have the best touch in all of basketball there in what is maybe the most valuable shot for a high-level pick-and-roll scorer and ball handler. 57% on fadeaways, where again, that high post area, he just cooks dudes. And that extension of his game and the addition of that dominant mid-range aspect, it just makes him so unpredictable. It makes him so unguardable. It's a difference between him and a guy even like James Harden, where they do so much of the same things well, but now he has that in-between game even to another level. He was an 82nd percentile pick and roll score, an 80th percentile isolation score, an 83rd percentile post score. One of the best passers in basketball with his unreal vision, throwing lobs and dotting up shooters like really almost nobody else can. 
So I don't think the burden can be, hey, Luca, you're only in year four, right? Theoretically, you should be improving. I don't know how he can without a physical transformation. Like if we see skinny Luca and all of a sudden he's more explosive, maybe he just becomes the greatest offensive player we've ever seen. And by the way, as I've said many times over, I do think he's on that trajectory. I think he's going to be a top three basketball player of all time. And I would say with even more confidence, a top three offensive player of all time. Like we've just never seen anybody produce like this this soon. But at the end of the day, the roster around him is fundamentally the same. And that's why I don't think you can have the Mavs winning 60-something games or whatever, even if he's the MVP favorite right now, which he is as far as odds, and he is this supernova all-time talent. Uh, agreed. And uh, I want to touch on on the skinny Luka point. I think it would kind of take away from his game a little bit. You know what I mean? Like the way he, he bumps guys off their defensive spots, the way he bangs with the bigs down low, as, as you've touched on so many times. Just Luka's strength is really underrated. That's a that's a strong fellow, man. He's a, he's a mule down there. Um, but you're exactly right. I think the biggest thing is that he doesn't have any, you know, any other new talent that, can, that is really, you know, can, can be on that level of a second or third star. And I, I think at this point, this is a bigger point, I think, in this entire roster, but I wonder if it's time to move on from Kristaps. I wonder if it's time to, you know, go on and search for... I'm not saying that he's bad, but, I mean, you need... Luka needs that second guy to depend on to help him close games. You know, like D-Book needed a CP3, and I'm not saying that Luka's on that level. Luka can carry an offense by himself, but he just needs somebody. He needs somebody else who is comparable on that level. On the Kristaps point, though, Carson, I think one of my biggest questions about the Mavs this season has to be how they divvy up these minutes at this five spot and, you know, how they construct it. I looked on ESPN's depth chart. I don't know how accurate this can be. Right now they have Kristaps listed at the four and Kleba listed at the five. Um, I don't really get that. I I think running them on the floor together, I love just because of the floor spacing that you have, obviously. But I just have questions about the five spot in general, even down to the bench. Like, you have Dwight Powell here. You have Willie Cauley-Stein. You have Moses Brown. You have Boban Marjanovic. And I just don't know how you how you give all, differentiate up all these minutes. Like, you know, Kristaps and Kleber are going to get, you know, 30 minutes a night, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for the bench. Me, I would probably lean toward Moses Brown just because he has a little bit more upside, like Willie Cauley-Stein and him kind of do the same thing, you know, in that same just rim protection, rim running role. Um, like, I just don't, there's a lot of bench big depth here that just doesn't work, and I think they're going to have to move on from some of these guys um, or just simply not play them. Um, I really like Moses a lot. I really hope that he does get some burn. I would have loved to have seen him, like, I was kind of excited to see, like, maybe if they ran him and Kristaps together or him and Kleba together. It's difficult, though, because Carson, like, we've talked a lot about how Kristaps has defensive issues of his own. Moses has some really big defensive deficiencies, um, and that's kind of why I feel like they're shying away from maybe giving him a big role immediately or maybe starting him like Moses just is kind of flat-footed sometimes out of the pick and roll like when guys drive on him like straight up when guys drive straight to Moses he's a great rim protector but guys don't do that here they stop and they get that shot off and he's just he's not as mobile as some of these other guys who can get out and guard him either way it's a really good addition but I don't know if he gets burned because of the you know the other guys in front of him Dwight Powell's probably you know still better than him at this part he's a better defender Willie Cauley-Stein is arguably a better defender you know although you can look at the block totals it's just a crowded front court right now, and the Mavs are going to have to figure out how to differentiate these minutes before the season starts. To me, the odd guy out is probably Willie Cauley-Stein and Boban, and that's where I'd set it up. Uh, what do you think, though? So, I think this is interesting, too. First of all, I don't know what ESPN is talking about. That's just egregious, bad work to have Kleba starting at the five. That's not how he's utilized whatsoever. In fact, he is... 
equally as adept as a perimeter defender, if not more adept than he is as an interior defender. Whereas KP is a guy who can still protect the rim well enough, but does not have that kind of lateral mobility out there, that kind of switchability. So I don't even know what they're thinking there. But we'll move on from that. I don't think this is a point of concern really whatsoever. Like, I think it's interesting, but if Willie Cauley-Stein doesn't play, who cares? I don't care. I mean, no, it's not a big point of concern from like a win perspective. I mean, but like how they figure out the rotation, it definitely is. Well, I think it's interesting. And I think Moses Brown is a really intriguing addition here because I like his game a lot. I think he obviously was very productive this past year. And he has just a lot of tools that make for a good traditional big man. Like he's not the kind of signature guy who you go out there and pay, but he rolls to the bucket well. He's a really good vertical athlete. He eats on the glass, averaged nine assists a game, excuse me, nine boards a game in 21 minutes a night. Nine assists a game would be something else from the center spot for Moses. But he's just super productive. He protects the rim well enough. He can be that kind of great pick and roll partner for Lucas. So I think it's worth considering starting him at the five alongside KP. I wouldn't do it though. I would go with the more traditional group of Luca, THJ, Finney Smith, Kleba, and KP. That gives you the shooting that you need to enable Luca to thrive. It gives you general switchability and solid defense. And I think that those are, with the exception of Jalen Brunson, their best five guys, but I just don't know how you fit Jalen Brunson into that starting backcourt. So that's what I think they do. I think Moses is interesting, and I think that Boban remains a guy who you utilize in certain matchups. You're not going to play him 20-something minutes a night, but there are certain teams that he will just eviscerate and remains one of my favorite players to watch just because the dude has otherworldly touch and he's seven foot four. What's not to like? But I think that Moses is a very legit quality backup big who is a top seven or eight guy on this team and gets a lot of minutes. Dwight Powell is another interesting guy because he can be sort of a four or five for you offensively. I think that he will find a role no matter what, and I think that he'll play. And worst comes to worst, you give Luka two different lob threats to go to at once if it's off the bench with Powell and Moses Brown or whatever combination. Maybe it's Moses with KP playing as effectively as starting five. I don't think that's going to hurt you, and I just think those are high-probability options who do simple roles pretty well, and overall depth is just a very clear strength of this Dallas team. Yeah, agreed. And uh, on that, I do also want to say... Moses in that role, I think, is where he's best fit because he's going to go up against bench bigs that maybe, you know, can't defend the rim as well. And that's why he ate a lot last year. He's facing, you know, favorable matchups, and I think it's where you can use him. I want to ask you, though, Carson, you mentioned, the, you know, the potential shooting uh, peak that this team could reach, you know, if they stagger their minutes and they run their lineup right. Is that what, you know, is that what raises the bar for this team? Is that what, you know, could get them over the hump and win them a playoff series? Is that what could get them to... 55 wins if they are lights out and like the best three-point shooting team in the league around Luka and if it's not that then what is you know what can make this team drastically better than they were last year so sure in a single series that level of shooting can get you over the hump and by the way we almost saw that this year like Luka was transcendent, right? The guy averaged 36 a game. Again, he was just bombing away from beyond the arc like we've never seen before. And if he had been able to knock down 80% of his free throws, would have been basically perfect basketball from him. But the guys around him were making a lot of shots. And the Mavs were shooting like 50% from deep over, I believe, the first three games. And they didn't cool down dramatically. They had a couple off nights, but still definitely were more efficient than LA from deep. THJ had a career series there. So that's enough to get you over the hump. Again, 
in a single playoff series because, hey, you have the one transcendent superstar, you have the shooting around him. I think that Dallas, two years ago, they were a top two team in basketball and three-pointers made. I think that they can reasonably get back to that kind of level. And honestly, if Josh Richardson hadn't sort of inhibited them there last year, then maybe they would have already been there. And that can take your offense up another level. I think, though, the fundamental thing is what you touched on. And it's not, to me, just having a second star, right? It's having a second creator from the perimeter who is borderline star level. Because you know what? KP is incredibly frustrating. And we've talked about it so many times on this podcast. We don't need to anymore. But just looking at what he once was, the kind of dynamic, aggressive athlete compared to what he is now, where he's the 7'3 guy who loves shooting turnarounds more than anything else, it's frustrating, sure. At the same time, he generally does his job pretty well. Very bad playoff series, sure. Not a guy who steps up to the moment, maybe. Just not a guy who I love, given the talent level that he could theoretically have and the production that could follow that. But... He went on stretches during the regular season where he's scoring 20 a game very efficiently. In fact, he had a really good regular season overall this past year, much better than the year prior. The thing is, he's not a guy who is a pressure release. He's not a guy who is that secondary engine alongside Luka. His opportunities are created by Luka, just like everybody else's. And so having a 7-3 guy who can shoot the ball, that's great, but they need more. And this is what we've been looking for for multiple years with this team. They need a secondary creator. They needed a Kyle Lowry had he been an option for them, which he was, they just didn't get him. They needed even like a Fred Van Vliet kind of guy. Just anybody of that tier who is able to operate off ball and kill people with their shooting or whatever, but can also command the game in stretches, can take that pressure off of Luka, can run the game when he is on the bench, and they just don't have that guy. As much as I might love Jalen Brunson, he's not that level of an initiator, of a playmaker, of a scorer. So until they find that, I love the depth here. This is going to be a great rotation. It is a phenomenal top nine with basically the guys we have mentioned, and then I'm not even sure if a guy like Trey Burke plays. I don't even know if Boban plays. I don't even know if Josh Green plays a lot. And those are all guys who, in their own ways, you know, have potential or have shown flashes. Tyrell Terry, we both liked a lot. I don't think there's any chance he plays. But so that tells you about the depth of this team. At the end of the day, though, I just don't think that this roster compares to contenders because great role guys can only take you so far. If you have a Trey Young on the stretch that he was on in last year's playoffs, or you have a Luka Doncic, you can win a playoff series. You may even be able to win two. But at the end of the day, you need multiple of those game-changing difference makers. And I think that the Mavs have one of those guys. And fundamentally, that is why they can't be an elite, elite basketball team. I completely agree. Uh, We got John uh, here in the chat uh, suggesting a Porzingis for wall trade. I'm going to be honest, I was just going to suggest, you know, moving off Porzingis in general um, because of the role he plays in that offense. I don't like that move just because John Wall is a guy that's just going to eat Luka's touches and he's not going to offer anything off ball. Like, and honestly, with the guard rotation here, I don't really even think point guard is of concern. Luka's your de facto point guard. Um, interesting, but I do like moving off Porzingis. And I think, I think you touched on it, Carson. I, I get that you're not a big guy on that, but the reason that I have been such a banger on the drum of this, you know, moving Kristaps out of Dallas is because 
it's his role here, you know? Like, he's playing basically as a spot-up shooter and a... No, I'm not buying that, dude. That's on him. That's how he wants to play basketball. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Kristaps isn't super uber-talented in... No, Kristaps is probably one of the more talented guys that they can get. But what I'm saying is, if Kristaps is going to play this way, and again, we have talked about this so much, why not just have Larry Markkinen? Why not just have a guy that is going to just be knocked down off ball to Luka? Like, if that's all Kristaps is going to offer you, then go get a guy that does that exclusively and let Kristaps go on someplace else. Like, to me, Carson, like, I don't know what his value is around the league post-injury and with how he plays, but getting that secondary closer, that secondary engine, and then replacing Kristaps with just a guy who's going to be knocked down off the, you know, that's obviously a lesser version of but who's just going to knock down shots, I think that's smart. I think that's what the Mavs have to do to get better. And, like, again... Kristaps is going to be, he's going to be successful. He's going to get his numbers, and he's going to help the Mavs win games. But with the way he plays, it's not maximizing his own abilities, and that's still an issue. And I don't think Kristaps ever changes this. Like Carson, I don't even know if he, if he left Dallas and he had a more volume of opportunity where he could have an expanded role in an offense. I just don't think that's his game anymore. We had those hopes for him in New York pre-injury when, you know, when he was young. But I just don't think, I don't think that's his game, and I don't think that's how he wants to play. So I think it's in Dallas's best interest to move off of him, get somebody that does his role for way less money, and finding a guy who can handle the rock alongside Luka. That's what I think they should do. That's what I think they have should have done for a long time. Are, are you in agreement with me? I agree in principle. Who's that guy, though? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think he's on the market. And that's what's so frustrating to me about Dallas and that's why, again, I have banged the drum for those guys. And I was even excited when they took Tyrell Terry because I was like, maybe long-term he can be that. I was excited when they got Josh Richardson because I was like, hey, this is a guy who can create off the bounce. He can play make. But they haven't clearly approached the level of that player in that mold who they need. And it's so weird how much timetables are accelerated in today's NBA. But yeah, the timetable is accelerated because back-to-back first-round exits are frustrating when you have a player the caliber of Luka Doncic, even if he's only entering year four. So I think that we've touched on it. The roster is similar, and therefore I think the ceiling is pretty similar overall. And to me, it's not just set by the fact that you have Luka and effectively a bunch of role guys, right? That's how I've always referred to KP because of the reasons you laid out. He's not a star. He's a really good role player, basically. He fills a simple role. And that's why I don't think you could be disappointed when he doesn't go out there and take over in the playoffs. If he's not making the shots that he normally takes, guess what? He's not assertive enough. He's not diverse enough in his skill set to actually do anything about it and impact the game like an actual star would. So that's not the only thing. Because again, they're still a fantastic offense. The defense is going to be something that sets the ceiling of this team because they were 21st in defensive rating last year. But when they just got to be average defensively, which is what they were after the All-Star break, they were 24 and 14. That's a really, really good team. Whereas before that, when they were abysmal defensively, they were sub 500. So that's really what turned their season around. And if they can be average defensively, they can be a really good overall team. There's one more thing that I want to ask you about because I don't think their defensive ceiling is changing dramatically. Like, I think that they will probably be around average, maybe slightly below average. There's no world to me in which they suddenly leap to being a top 10 defense. But this talent is going to be used differently now because Jason Kidd is the head coach of this team. Personally, I'm not a huge fan. I think that the Carlisle move 
as far as their mutual separation was probably necessary because nothing is more important than keeping Luka happy. Apparently, KP wanted out if they didn't make the change. Not that I would really care about that as much, but Luka was not happy. So you make those changes. And this is a simple enough system that you kind of just let Luka do his thing and everybody else plays off of that and it kind of just goes. You don't need some brilliant schematic coach. So yes, you're maintaining the happiness of your key players. That's good. I like this in that sense, but I just don't think Jason Kidd has shown himself to be a very good basketball coach, definitely not compared to Rick Carlisle. So what do you think? Do you have really any strong opinion on Kidd now being the head coach here and how that could potentially impact what this Dallas team is capable of? I mean, I don't know how you can look at this hire and say that Jason Kidd has been anything but underwhelming in his career. You know, I don't really... I mean, he's average with that old Brooklyn Nets team. He was average with the Milwaukee, you know, the young Milwaukee Bucks squad. And I will say, like, those teams were good defensively. Like, and maybe that's the overwhelming takeaway if you want to be optimistic about the kid hiring is that maybe he can help them raise their defensive floor. But no, I don't think he's proven anything. I mean, there's a reason that he was let go from Milwaukee and became an assistant coach a couple years back. There's a reason that he was out of basketball for for a year and not coaching. I Maybe they get better defensively, but I, I, I'm just not that big a fan of Jason Kidd. We, he just hasn't proved it yet. Um, I, I'm skeptical. I'm really skeptical. Yeah, I don't think that this is a total needle moving change because again, Luca is going to do his thing. These shooters are going to do their thing, and there's a lot of really good role players here. But I definitely don't think it's an upgrade. What are you laughing about over there? I'm just laughing that, that when you look at. Jason Kidd's transactions here. He was traded by the Nets for for Pat Connaughton and Admiral Schofield. So that's about Jason Kidd's value as a head coach in the NBA. And then he was replaced midseason by a dude named Joe Prunty. So, yeah, he doesn't have the best track record. But you know what? He's a player's coach, and if he has a good relationship with Luka, hey, I guess that means something. But... It's always painful to me when you trade in a really good basketball coach for a not-so-good basketball coach. But again, this thing is going to be fine. It's a machine. I have the Mavs winning 49 games. I have them penciled in as the five seed. By the way, as I always say, this is all penciled in right now. I will have my final records and predictions once we've gone through every division. What I will say, though, Logan, is... I've repeatedly talked to you about my concern that I was going to have a league record of way over 500 for the NBA just because I think every team is so talented. I've actually gone below 500 for every division. So I've got room to work with. I've got wins to add, which is huge for morale for me. But so that's where I have the Mavs. What do you have for them? Uh, I have them going uh, just one game better, 50 and 32. I just think Luka's such an offensive engine. I just can't see this team not winning 50 games. Uh, I think that I think he does get marginally better. I think this offense is a little better. You know, you get rid of, like, I mean, you talk about the loss of, like, J.J. Redick and Josh Richardson, bad off-ball shooters last season. Uh, I think they're going to be better shooting the pill this year, so I think they get marginally better. But uh, I don't think 50, will, uh, 50 wins is out of the, uh, you know, is out of the way. I think, I think that's definitely uh, possible. It's going to be tough out west, but I think Luka can will this team to 50 wins. Absolutely agree. But again, I just don't know that this roster as a whole, even though I like the role guys for what they are, compares to that of a true contender. So to me, they're very clearly the best team in this division. That's not really up for debate. Who do you have second here in the Southwest? I think there's a clear-cut number two here in the Southwest. I've got the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, 
it's just tough, man. The Grizzlies are just in, just in basketball limbo. Uh, you know, just stuck. Just stuck in the middle. It was a Jimmy Eat World song. Stuck in the middle with you. Is that? No, the middle. Yeah, that's a Jimmy Eat World song. But also, there's a song called Stuck in the Middle from Reservoir Dogs. That's a banger. The movie? No, the play. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is a banger, bro. Um, shout out Quentin Tarantino. Uh, yeah, dude, it just it sucks. Jaron Jackson Jr. was supposed to be that guy. Like, Jaron was supposed to be that second guy that Ja could count on. And I don't know, man. I'm scared we're seeing a Kristaps Porzingis 2 type situation. Because, I mean, it's not like Jaron liked to go down low and bang with the boys. But pre-injury, he was never a guy that liked to bang down low on the glass. And, you know, to maximize your capabilities as a four or just the big in this league, you have to. And uh, in the 11 games that we saw of Jaron, it it was a rough shooting stretch. Uh, Like, free throw-wise, he was good. And that gives me, you know, hope that he can get back up to a really high level um, as a three-point shooter, I believe he was 83% on free throws last season, but he was, uh, let me pull this up, I mean, he was uh, you know, 42-28-83 splits in 11 games, 14 points per game. Like, it's just tough. Like, like coming off of an injury like that, you'd like to see the guy come back to 100, but it, there's a couple of questions. There's just one about his general health, and then again, what role he's going to play in when he comes back. He just can't be a spot-up shooter. you got to be dynamic, and... I don't know if that changes, but I think the bigger loss is of Jonas Valanciunas. Like, this is a huge loss for this Memphis Grizzlies team. When Ja was out, when Triple J was out, when Dylan Brooks missed time, or when the Grizzlies just needed a bucket on offense, Valanciunas was the guy they turned to. And I think that was a pretty simple observation you could make when watching Memphis games is, at times, Valanciunas is the best offensive player on this team. And what I mean by that is he's not. John Moran is obviously always going to be the best offensive engine. What I mean by that is Valanciunas at times was the only dependable offense you could you would have. His little post hooks, his little, you know, back down, get a little close shot at the rim. Those were the only shots that Memphis had at certain times. And Steven Adams is not that developed of an offensive player. I mean, like he's gonna yeah, he's probably going to put up 12 to 13 a game. You know, he's going to get you 10 boards. He's going to bang down low. But there is a huge burden on John Morant to not only facilitate and make things open up in this offense, but to also score the ball at a you know a really efficient rate. And that was something that he struggled with last year. Scoring the ball was a real challenge for John. And if that shot doesn't come along, this offense could be in real trouble. You're depending on Dylan Brooks to get you 20 a night to be competitive again. And so just offensively, I just have a myriad of concerns about this team. The loss of Valanciunas, Jaws shot, and Jaws offensive game in general. I think he's got to develop that mid-range game, that touch. And I don't know, like, this bench is stellar as always, and they are one of the deepest in the league. This is a gritty team. They are going to play hard, and they are going to play hard defensively and win you games like that. But offensively, I am really concerned about this team just being able to stay competitive. Like, I think for the Grizzlies to win games this year, they're going to have to win a lot in transition, just getting out and getting quick buckets off of their defense because I just think half-court offense is going to be a struggle, especially with Valanciunas out of town. Yeah, so look, I know better than to bet against the Grizzlies winning a decent amount of games, okay? Because the culture is too strong here. The roster is too strong here. Defensively, they are so sound. They just have one of the best senses of their identity in basketball. They know how they win games. They utilize that depth. They utilize that grit. They played as a top seven defense in basketball last year. They played at the eighth fastest pace, which really was a step back from the year before where they were even faster. But 
there is regression in this roster. Like, I guess if you were going to point at one thing and say, hey, this is why the Grizzlies will be better, it would be maybe the overall development of their roster, just given how young they are, and having Triple J for a full season. But I think you correctly identified a few issues here. First of all, losing Valanchunas really hurts. And I think you touched on why. He's a great go-to scorer out of the post. He's a high-level role man. He just fit here. This is a team that attacks the paint persistently and at a really high level, and he was a fundamental part of that. And Steven Adams, defensively, will be an upgrade. Although I have to say, Valanciunas, not a super mobile guy, but massive presence, 7'6 wingspan, not a guy who it was super easy to just take it right at him around the rim, and that's mostly what this defense needs. Adam will still Adams will still be a little bit better in that respect, but you're getting no creation from him. This guy scored 7.6 points per game last year. Like, he's just not an impactful player offensively at all. And this is a team that, as you said, is needing offensive punch more than anything else, needing reliable, consistent, efficient offensive creation. So losing that hurts. Losing Grayson Allen hurts, dude. Like, he was essential to this team throughout last year, not just as a part of a great bench unit, but as the year went along, he started playing better, he became more and more important, and he had some monster performances when they needed him. So that hurts. And then the thing with Triple J is, I have always been of the belief that Triple J is fundamentally not a massive needle-moving guy. When he came out of the draft, I thought, I don't know what the star ceiling is because offensively, his game was simple. And it was defined by, really, the shooting. And you talk about the KP comparison. Triple J can put the ball on the floor, and that's exciting, but he doesn't do it regularly enough. He doesn't really have an advanced post game. He's not a physical presence. And so, yeah, he can just fade. And he sucked last year. Sure, he's coming off of injury, but he was unplayable in the playoffs. Like, to the point where you don't even see him out there on the floor in big minutes. He still doesn't know how to play without fouling like a wild man. He still doesn't have that in-between game, that creation. So, look... This guy averaged 14 a game last year, as you said, on 42-28 splits. And by the way, the Grizzlies have never in his career been statistically better with him on the floor than off it. In fact, last year, they were 15 points per 100 worse with him on the floor in the regular season and 14 points per 100 worse with him out there in the playoffs. So I think he's a good basketball player. He's a guy I want healthy and all these things. There's room for growth, sure. But right now in his current form, He's not a guy to me who says, hey, mark the Grizzlies down for plus five wins. I don't think he was their second best player last year whatsoever, nor would he have been if he was healthy. That was Jonas Valanciunas. And when it became meaningful basketball time, I'll tell you who asserted himself in that conversation much more strongly than Triple J, clearly Dylan Brooks. So raw talent is not the only thing that indicates value. And I'm just not super optimistic that Triple J is going to change things. So... The bench remains very strong here. Like, guys, outside of that starting five, you have De'Anthony Melton, who, boy, oh, boy, do we love as a two-way player here at Nerd Sesh. Xavier Tillman, boy, oh, boy, do we love him here at Nerd Sesh. The floater. Oh, the floater from the big man. You love it. Brandon Clark, another guy with the floater from the big man. Tyus Jones, just a good cerebral playmaker. That's all good. But I will say, even compared to last year and the year before that, I don't know that this bench is as good. Like with the loss of Allen, I just feel like they've lost a little bit of depth and there's a couple of swing guys who are sort of uncertain that could maybe change that. Again, I'm not going to bet against them and I'm not going to say, hey, this team is going to win 35 games. 
because they're just too good for that. They're too good at the things that they do well, and they're too determined, and they're too well-coached and all these things. But there's no world in which this team wins 50 games. Like, they're just as in that ceiling, and that's a frustrating place to be, even if you're young, even if you're talented, even if you have this potential superstar guy in John Morant. Because again, staying at the same level in any phase for three straight years is frustrating. That's what the Grizzlies are on pace to do. That's what the Mavs are on pace to do. And so even if they're in overall a good spot, that's the kind of thing that leads to change within an organization. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if they stay like that, like, and they don't make moves, that's just so head-scratching to me, Carson, is they don't... It's frustrating and it's smart as an organization. Obviously, you always, you always want to stay younger. You want to continue to get assets and they continue to get a draft capital. But like you said, they don't make any needle-moving moves. They don't get anybody to help jaw. And it, you just have to wonder... How long does it take until he gets frustrated? How long does it take until the organization gets frustrated and decides we need to blow this up? I'm not saying that they're there, but a few more years of just down the middle, there's not a whole, you know, there's not a lot they can take. I think you identified though, Carson, a big swing thing, and that's is any of these young guys get any better? If I had to pick a guy, it would probably be the Swiss Army knife himself, the Anthony Melton, just because that kid's electric, man. He's great with the ball in his hands. He's great in the pick and roll. He's stifling defensively. He's just a jack all trades. He does everything right, and I think that you know he could be a really good six man again this year. But the rest of the guys, I just don't really see them, you know, really surpassing their current role. Desmond Bain is an elite three and deer and a really good facilitator. Honestly, I'd probably be starting him over Kyle Anderson at this point in their careers. I think it's kind of a no brainer. I don't see him getting, you know, becoming anything more than a really solid three and deer. Don't get me wrong. There's a there's a be that second guy. Xavier Tillman, great bench big. I, you know, I don't see that star potential there. Brandon Clark, a great rim runner, a great rebounder, decent with the ball in his hands, but I don't see that potential there. So, I mean, you just have to, we've been saying this about the Grizzlies for a while, you have to find that guy, and I just don't think he's here. Um, obviously, I think they're hoping that Zaire Williams is going to be that guy. Uh, you know, they took him, what was he, the eighth pick? Tenth. Tenth. I mean, way higher than we thought he was going to get taken, really underwhelming at Stanford, but they seem to be pretty high on the guy. And I guess I have a question of how much burn he gets again because this is a really deep bench. I'd probably G-League the guy. I don't really think he's ready for NBA minutes right now. But that's still, that's a year or two away from him being an impact player in this rotation. So, I mean, again, the Grizzlies are going to be good. Like you said, Carson, I would never pick this team to finish below 500 because they're that gritty. They're going to steal some games because of how hard they play every possession. But the needle's not moving this year, and I don't think it's moving next year. And... I don't know when it does, if it ever does. There has to be a drastic overhaul with this young talent. There has to be a major move where they take these young pieces and they move them for a big-time player. Or nothing. Nothing's changing here. Yeah, the Zaire pick was really interesting. And in the moment, I was an anti-Zaire in the lottery guy. Like, I just thought, sure, he's shown flashes of things, of playmaking, of a shot, of a handle that is impressive at his size, athletically solid, impressive in moments. But I was just like, in this draft, there's too many guys who have established so much that you shouldn't take a guy who scored whatever he did. Nine points a game on 37% from the field and 29% from deep at Stanford. Like, that's just not worthy of a top 10 or a lottery pick. But the reason I said, okay, it's more justifiable for Memphis, a lot more justifiable, in fact, is that I just liked the big swing. I like them saying, hey... Long-term, we feel we have our great perimeter initiator, the guy who can break defenses, who can exert pressure, who can play, make, and amplify others, and John Morant, our leader, all those things. Let's get that great wing score to pair alongside him. 
And Zaire theoretically could be that long-term. He's much too far away right now, though. Much too far away. Even in summer league, we saw 38% from the field, 20% from three. Like, he just doesn't do anything consistently enough. So maybe you're right. G League could be the path. I don't think he's a rotation guy either way. The only other player who I look at and think, boy, is he talented, and currently expectations are very low, is Justice Winslow. And God, I want to believe that Justice Winslow is going to be good. He's with the Clippers, bro. Yeah, well, oops, totally forgot about that. Never mind. He's not a possible needle mover. So overall, I just think that, again, we kind of know what this team is for the most part. Oh, you don't think Jarrett Culver's a big swing guy? Jarrett Culver. Now, that's not an addition that I'm a fan of. Not a Jarrett Culver supporter. In fact, going to go down as probably one of the biggest busts in NBA history. That guy just flat out sucks. So... I guess the one thing you could look at is maybe does Jaw take another leap because year one to year two from him, we didn't see significant progression. And a lot of that was that he just didn't shoot the ball very well. But after the all-star break, he was better than 34% from deep. And if he can just do that for a full year, the playmaking, the finishing, the athleticism, we know that's all there. The floater is beautiful. And he had an all-time, maybe that's a little generous, but a really, really impressive playoff performance last year that I think he can build off of and he showed how he gets that high levels of the score he doesn't have to be necessarily a dynamic shot maker off the dribble he can just attack the rim over and over again relentlessly and can get upwards of 20 a game that way so we'll see if he can do that over a full year overall though again I just don't see that path to them taking a significant leap I mean I would just ask Carson on that like if Ja doesn't develop that three-point shot, like, don't get me wrong, like you said, I think that's the last piece of his game. If he doesn't ever develop that shot, though, I mean, like, is he that valuable of a ball handler? Is he that valuable of an asset? I mean, like, all right, bro, go ahead. Yes, dude. Offensive question from Logan Camden. I don't know how you can watch what he did in the playoffs to Rudy Gobert and say, yeah, I don't really care about that because he can't knock down shots from the perimeter. Like, that dude exerts a very unique kind of pressure. He is a relentless, phenomenal finisher at the rim. And that can make you a star, dude. How is Russell Westbrook a star? How was he a star? Because he just can do that to a defense over and over and over again. And that's the kind of potential that John Morant has. All right, so I mean, if he's a 35% shooter all year long... Does that raise the ceiling of this team? Maybe by a little bit, but I don't know. Not significantly, in my opinion, because even if he is knocking down the opportunities, most of the time it's because he kind of gets left open. Like People just don't really respect the shot like that, and he still doesn't have a fluid enough motion to where he's knocking down step backs or he's doing high-level advanced creation off the dribble. So, yeah, I just don't think that that is going to be the major leap in his game this year. So I have the Grizzlies going 41 and 41. I need to figure out where exactly I have them in the standings because of that, but it'll be outside of the top eight and inside of the top 10. So I think they're a play-in team. What do you think? Copy paste. Literally, I have the exact same projection. Sweet. Look at that. Nerd sesh in sync. All right. Who do you have next in this division? Uh, I've got the New Orleans Pelicans uh, here in my third spot for the Southwest, and honestly, dude, I'm I'm so excited to watch the Pelicans play. I just 
I'm really excited with the roster turnover. You know, I think the Lonzo ball loss is a big one. He really helped, you know, uh, use his term a lot. Helped select the wheels of the offense, helped facilitate a lot, and was a knockdown off-ball shooter, which is kind of exactly what New Orleans needs. It, it, you know, it hurt that they didn't retain him because I think he was a valuable asset for this roster, especially with the defensive deficiencies you have down here. But um, they're still going to be really fun to watch, and it does free up the rock fully uh, to Zion Williamson. I think that's the biggest swing thing for this team is can Zion Williamson take that, you know, star playmaking leap as we discussed at the end of last season and become a complete offensive engine? He is the greatest defensive collapser in the NBA today. Do you agree with me in saying that? Yeah, alongside Giannis. Yeah, I mean, I think those have to be the top two. And in in that of, it, of itself, if you have shooters alongside Zion, they are going to be successful, which I think does bring up a big question. Carson, I asked you, Although I do have to mention this, uh, Zion did go undergo surgery uh, in the offseason, so I mean that does matter on his right foot. Um, hopefully, he comes back 100%. You know, hasn't lost any of that explosiveness. Just something to look out for. I still think you put the ball in his hands when he comes back and let him run. This question has been brought up a lot of times. I posed you to this in our last class. When I've got, I, I'm just playing, guys. We would never like use class time to talk about basketball or anything. I asked you if Brandon Ingram and him could last together long-term and if you thought that was feasible. And I just don't know, bro, because, like, I'm not saying that Brandon Ingram isn't transcendently talented. He's going to get 20 a night if you give him the volume of opportunity. He can do it pretty damn efficiently. B.I. is a really good basketball player. But neither, both of them have their defensive issues, whether that be awareness in general of just staying engaged and locked in and caring, and also in the fact that, and I question up here if they're smart enough to, to process the game and know where they need to rotate and where they move on. And that part of has to do with them being engaged and aware. So defensively, that's an issue. But it also is, like, why would I put the ball in B.I.'s hands when, when I feel like, you know, the ball is best in Zion's hands most possessions and when B.I. is most likely going to be used as a catch-and-shooter? In my opinion, I would fish out and I would see what value you could get for B.I. and maybe see if you could get another pick-and-roll ball handler that can, you know, make shots off the dribble and close games out because that's what you need. And that's the appeal of having a guy like B.I. here alongside Zion. Late in games, you can just give the ball to him and not even worry about Zion and B.I. can try to go get you those tough ISO buckets. But long term, I just think it makes more sense to just have a pure three and D alongside Zion who's going to play tough defense, who is going to knock down shots. And I think that guy's Trey Murphy. Maybe I'm a little overzealous because he's a UVA wing. You know, I said DeAndre Hunter was like the 15th guy. I'd like to build an NBA roster around that take age. You know, maybe, maybe it'll age better. I just think Trey's ready to play now. I think he's a perfect fit alongside Zion. And I think, dude, like I said this to you in class, a Kyra Lewis pick and roll, a Zion with a ball in his hands pick and roll, that swing guy who's on Trey or on the wing or on the other side, whoever's on that help side is going to have to help and try to knock the ball loose or just, you know, stop Zion in his tracks. You know, they're going to have to slide and help. That's going to open up shots on the wing. And I just think it's a waste of B.I.'s talent to just use him as a catch-and-shooter when Trey is perfect in that role. I think Trey Murphy could play right now. I think he could start right now. And I think he's the perfect beast to have alongside Zion Williamson. And I just, I don't know, man. I think this offense is at its best when the ball is in Zion's hands, and I don't want to use B.I. as a pure catch-and-shooter. What do you think about that? So... Here's my take on the B.I. Zion fit. I think it is flawed in a few ways. Defensively, suboptimal. Offensively, they don't have complementary skill sets, as I think you touched on. They're both guys who need the ball in their hands 
but are not guys who run offense. Like Zion's playmaking is a product of, as you said, him collapsing defenses. And B.I. is a fine playmaker, a solid playmaker out of the pick and roll, but he's a, a scorer first. And his objective is to score, and he does that at three levels very, very well. Special player, but his production has basically been identical over the last two years, and I think that we should expect more of the same. I don't know that he's changing as a player at this point, and I certainly don't think that crazy playmaking ceiling is coming. So... I see what you're saying. The thing to me is, I do think that this could work if there were a legitimate high-level point guard here running the whole operation to where you are running pick and roll with Zion and feeding him there. You are still allowing B.I. to do his thing in stretches, but you're just finding guys in their spots and whatnot and also scoring at a high level. And that's why I loved Kyle Lowry to the Pelicans because I was just like, what can't he do, right? He can play make, he can facilitate the offense, he can score, he can play off ball. I would have loved that. It didn't happen. So I understand where you're coming from, but my question again is going to have to be, who is the player you are trading BI for where you are getting appropriate value back? The only guy, and I don't know why they'd go through with this, you got to find a team that's kind of in that rebuilding phase, you know what I mean, that's going to be okay with giving up a young asset. The only guy that's at the forefront of my mind is Shea Gilgis-Alexander because I, you know, I don't know why the Thunder would pull the trigger on that deal because B.I.'s a little older than Shea, but it's like, I don't know, like if you throw, if throw a young guy in there, a pick maybe, Maybe they'd go for it. I just I think he's a guy that it's pretty attainable at this point. That is a complimentary piece design off ball that is really good in the mid range. That I think I'm thinking about too, dude. If you get a guy like Shea in here, you run pick and roll with Zion, man, in the lane. That's damn near unstoppable because Shea's either going to put up that floater, or he's throwing a lob, and you're getting sauced. That's kind of the only guy on the market that I can think is of the age that would fit a a playoff and championship timetable for this team that's young and that would grow with them. I'm trying to think of other young teams that maybe would, maybe a Darius Garland if the Cavs are stupid. You know what I mean? Like, there are young guys there on bad teams that I think you could move for. It's just about getting them to bite. I kind of, I actually, a Garland trade would be kind of gnarly in this, uh, you know, on this team. But there are guys, it's just a matter of pulling the trigger and committing yourself to it because that's a big loss, dude. Brandon Ingram's a really talented player and you want to make sure that you're getting approximate value back. But I think both of those guys would do it. Let me just say, Logan, actually, honestly, excellent sales pitches. I agree on both fronts. And are the Thunder going to want to trade for a guy who is older than who they currently have? Maybe not, but remarkably, SGA has not been made completely untouchable. Like, they were talking about involving him in a trade for the first pick this past year. So, B.I. is not of that same caliber as Cade Cunningham, theoretically. He's not a pick, so Sam Presti probably doesn't care. So, that probably wouldn't be doable. But if it were, yeah, I would be a big fan of that. And look, I love Darius Garland. And by the way, I think you could still sell the Cavs at this point and say, hey, this guy is an established star. Garland is still finding his way. And boy, oh boy, that would be good for the Pelicans because as I've said many times over, Darius Garland is going to be a star. So I think that, yeah, good sales pitch there. If you were the GM of the Pelicans, would you keep them together or would you explore moving on from B.I.? Well, I would probably explore moving on. And 
the thing is, again, it has to be for actually appropriate value because I'm not just going to give up on a score as gifted as B.I. and an overall offensive player that gifted if I don't feel like I'm getting a foundational piece back. I have to say, deep down, there is a part of me that still thinks Kyra Lewis Jr. can be really, oh, yeah. really good, but we didn't see him play all that much last year. I mean, he was in the rotation, but he wasn't super productive, wasn't all that reliable shooting from deep, but I just think I really liked him as a prospect. And you watch him out there in summer league, he just does things that make you think that's going to be an elite guard. The pace out of the pick and roll, he bobs and weaves, but he's an explosive, explosive athlete. He's got the floater game. He's a legitimate playmaker. So if he just knocks down reliably the shot from deep, which he did for the most part in college, I'm optimistic about that. So that's going to take time though. And I don't know if you want to say, hey, let's internally develop this guy and think that maybe long-term he can be the piece that we want because he's probably never going to be a star. As much as I like him, he'll probably just be a good point guard. So yes, I think it's worth considering. Let's talk about some of the changes that were made in this roster though because I think that they had sort of a weird offseason and that they lost Lonzo Ball, obviously, which I think is very painful because he filled his role at a very, very high level for the Pelicans. No longer have Eric Bledsoe. That's fine. I don't know that that matters all that much. Obviously, we're involved in the Grizzlies trade where now they have Valanchunas replacing Adams. And I just think overall, not a great offseason. Like, you lost your best off-ball shooter in Lonzo Ball, that just 3 and D guy, and you replace him with Devontae Graham, who brings more playmaking, who is something of a floor general presence, and can command the game a little bit, I guess, but is really, really flawed, can't do anything inside the arc, doesn't bring you any of that defensive value. So I don't love that. And then I really like Valanchunas, but is this the spot for him? Like, last year, the Pelicans were 27th in threes made, they were 26th in three-point percentage, and they didn't really fix that. And by the way, the defense was the fundamental flaw of this team where they were significantly below average, somewhere in the 20s in defensive rating. And they downgraded there too. They downgraded at center, maybe not by a ton, but by a bit. And they downgraded on the wings, losing Lonzo. They downgraded, losing Bledsoe. So like, to me, they're counting on a lot of internal development. And again, I just don't like the Valanciunas fit. I don't like a guy who has to operate in the interior, who's going to infringe on Zion's space down there, because everything should be built around Zion here. Everything should be, hey, how do we maximize his value? How do we empower him as a ball handler? Where we saw this dude was a 79th percentile scorer as a pick-and-roll ball handler, just barreling into people, basically. He's so great there. And he's this incredible role man, lob threat, Whatever you need him to do, his athleticism can basically allow him to do it. I just don't think that they got the right personnel to really enable that to happen. And it goes beyond certainly him and B.I. Because, by the way, they're not going to be the problem this year. Those guys are going to be great. It's going to be about the pieces around them. I tend to disagree a little bit on the Valanciunas uh point. I, I think he does work here. He's just going to have to commit to a slightly different role. And that means, you know, being out on the perimeter a little more, taking more catch-and-shoot threes... I mean, it's probably not the best for him. It's probably not the best for this offense. But I mean, you know, he's 35. He's like 30% off the catch. 36. Yeah, he's 30% off the catch. 36% from deep, uh, you know, basically last two seasons. Well, he took less than a three a game. It's not. You can't look me in the face, Logan, and say, yeah, Jonas Valanciunas is going to be chilling on the three-point line. That's not what he does. I mean, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be what he has to do. 
That's the point. It's not going to work. You can't just take players out of their element and say, hey, I know what you do best. You have to do something different here over and over again. That's what the Pelicans keep trying to do because they can't put the right personnel around Zion. I mean, yeah, and it's tough because Zion is such a tough player to build around in the sense that I get it. I get it. You know, if you want a real lineup that's designed around him, you'd go Zion at the five, probably B.I. at the four, Trey Murphy at the three, and you'd run it like that. And then you'd have, you know, whatever two-guard, you know, setup you want to run. I get that. But Valanciunas does bring that consistent post-presence, that consistent offense that they, it points in the season needed. Like, the Pelicans were just weird last year, you know, had weird streaks where they went cold offensively, had weird streaks where they went cold completely defensively. So, I mean, it gives them a consistent presence and consistent offense inside. I, I get your point. I just think Valanciunas can do it if he if he focuses on it. You know, he can be a decent catch-and-shooter. He's certainly an upgrade from Steven Adams in that department, and I think that's good enough. I think that's why they went out and did this. Defensively, I think you're right. I think they're going to struggle. As for the other pieces that you touched on, Carson, I might have just rolled the dice with Kyra Lewis Jr. at point this year. Instead of going with Devontae, I think Devontae brings something to this team, and that's kind of that fill-it-up inefficient scoring where you need a bucket on the perimeter, you need a bucket off the dribble, and Devontae can do that. And he's going to be a decent catch-and-shooter when B.I. and Zion are handling the rock and collapsing defenses and drawing other attention. But I love Kyra. I love what we saw in, in Summer League. I think you were exactly right on him, dude. Super fast, amazing acceleration, great change of pace. He's got a deceptive handle, and I think as you touched on, in the Summer League, pull-up three looks smooth, boy. 33% from deep last season. He's an 84% free-throw shooter. That, that three is going to come along, and the stroke is smooth. I think down the road, you know, I don't know what his ceiling is. I don't think he's got a superstar ceiling. His ceiling's pretty high, though. He's going to be a really good guard in this league. He's great out of the pick and roll. Like I think Kyra is going to be good as the season goes along, and he's a great finisher, man. For a guy who's a buck seventy, he can bang with the bigs, man. He can bump them off their spots a little bit. He was fifty-two percent inside five feet last season. I know it's only you know fifty percent for a little guy. It's not bad, bro. It's pretty bad, Logan. For a little guy, dude. Like well, buck seventy. The worst team field goal percentage inside of five feet in the NBA last year was around fifty-eight percent. Uh, maybe it is pretty bad. Um, the thing that will save Kyra, I think, as this season goes along, he shot 43 floaters last season. That's going to be where he needs to, you know, get his build the crux of his game. Speaking of floaters, I think it's Nikhil Alexander-Walker time, bruh. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take over because I know that's your guy. You've been high on him since he came out of tech. But, dude, when I squint, that dude's crafty, man, and the way he dribbles and the way he gets in the lane, the way he gets that floater off, when I squint, he gives me a little bit of those Emmanuel Quickly vibes, and I just, I don't know, man. I, I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker could be a sneaky buck uh, this season, you know, maybe 14, 15 points a game. Like, he's he's a dangerous bucket, man. I like how you have to squint to see Emmanuel Quickly. I think he has more creativity in his game. I think he has a deeper bag than IQ, and... I absolutely think that he is a potential swing guy on this roster because Devontae Graham, you know what you're getting, right? I mean, he's going to be a solid point guard. He does work well off ball because he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal shooter. He's not the kind of guy who is going to swing things, though, and he's clearly not as good of an overall player as a Lonzo Ball. Nikhil, though, within last year, progressed a lot. And his rookie year, you know, he showed flashes, but he wasn't a significant member of the team. 
After the All-Star break last year, he averaged 15 a game on 38% from deep. And you use the perfect word to describe him. He is just crafty. He's got a legitimate bag. He's got a deceptive handle. He's a good finisher around the rim, a guy who's adaptive there, makes adjustments, just finds a way to put the ball in the bucket. He's shown some real floater touch. He was 18 of 34 on floaters this past year. He's got solid playmaking instincts, like you put the ball in his hands and he'll whip a couple passes that make you say, hey, that's pretty darn impressive. He's pretty ambidextrous. Like, I think 15 points per game is a reasonable expectation for him. And I think he had one of the more underrated sophomore campaigns because, again, the production wasn't there on the year overall, but he just got better and better. And maybe he's not the best fit here because, again, he's not a floor general. Sure, he can knock down shots off the catch. That's going to be part of his value. It's not his primary value necessarily to me, though. But what are you going to do with another one-on-one creator who's obviously not nearly as valuable as Zion or BI? I don't know. I think he is probably going to mostly find his success knocking down shots off the catch or maybe having a little bit of a go at it with the bench unit and they just stagger his minutes to where he can sort of thrive in that role. But he's a gifted player. You seem excited about him too. What do you want to add? I mean, I just say, like, like, and the reason I go with the IQ comp, man, is just he dribbles to open space. Like, when he doesn't, he doesn't force stuff offensively. When that screen comes, he takes what the defense gives him, and that's just something that, it's something that you can't teach with guys now they dribble. And like you said, man, he's got those stutter step feet. I can't, I don't know, man, that, that it's stop and pop. It's, yeah, you're doing it right now. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I was trying. I was giving them scary feet. Monster Zinc. You guys know what I'm talking about. Another thing about uh, NA Dub, man, the way he cuts, dude, he's a good cutter. And that's why I think he can succeed in any offense. You know, like I, I was wondering, do, you know, should the, should the Pelicans go with him in more of a six-man role? Should they go with him as the starter? I would start him. And the reason that is is when the shot clock is ticking down, when you are having trouble finding things on offense— However inefficient he may be, because I think he probably will be if they give him a lot of ISO touches, if they let him get his own burn, I think he could be inefficient, but that's the thing. When the shot clock is ticking down, this is a guy who you're just going to be able to give the ball to and get a screen, and he's going to be able to find a shot, whether it's that floater, whether it's that step back. This kid only took 21 step back jumpers in 2021. He shot 52.4% of them. He knocked down 11 of them. Again, small sample size, but he could improve on that with the ball in his hands. He's just a, he's a tough buck with the ball in his hands. That's something that, that's really valuable on any roster. So I'd start him. Like, this team's young. This team has a lot of room to grow. But there's a lot of talent here, man. It, it's just if if they can mesh together. And I'm, I'm excited to watch. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Again, I'm not crazy optimistic because I think the defensive issues are still there. The floor spacing issues are still there. And they're going to rely on some young guys. I will say... Like you, I'm a big fan of Trey Murphy. I've been a big fan of Trey Murphy. I think it's not just the shooting and the defense with him. He's just a smart offensive player who understands his role. Good cutter. Was an all-summer league selection. Averaged 16-7-3 there on 56% from the field, 44% from three. My comparison for him was like a Mikhail Bridges type. Like, I just think he's an impactful all-around two-way player. Oh, yeah. Logan said better shooting Mikhail Bridges down there, question mark. I think that's an apt comparison. So, any other swing things to you that stand out about this team? Willie Green, new head coach. I know that a lot of people hate it on Stan Van Gundy. I don't know if I rock with it as much. Like, sure, maybe he didn't fit with the organization or whatever, but, like, 
I think he did a couple of smart things in that we only saw 20 games of rookie Zion, but as this year went on, we saw Zion empowered more and more as a ball handler. We saw Lonzo, and look, maybe this is controversial, okay? I think in his optimum role as that 3 and D guy, which by the way, apparently he's not going to be in Chicago. He's talking about how he's going to be a traditional point guard again, which kind of bums me out because it makes me a little bit less optimistic about the Bulls, but whatever, we ride or die, baby, shy town. So anything else that stands out to you about this team that could be a determining factor? Because like, I feel like we should briefly touch on Zion because of the broken foot and the fact that that basically took away his offseason. He's not going to be a different player. And maybe he's even a little bit out of shape to start the year. And he's supposed to actually be able to play by the time the season tips off. But I was a guy who was critical of him for a while. I didn't like him compared to the consensus as a prospect. Even after his rookie year, I was like, hey, he still needs to develop in these areas. But dude, he just doesn't really. Like, it is the responsibility of the organization to put the pieces around him to say, let's get our primary ball handler. Let's get our closer. It's not on Zion to be those things because after the all-star break, the guy averaged 29 points per game and four assists per game on 61% from the field. He's a freak like we've never seen before. He's an insane offensive engine. And I just think he's going to continue to get better, honestly. But he probably isn't going to take a massive leap this year again because he didn't have an offseason. And that could be something of a limiting factor for this team. Because maybe you were thinking, hey, Zion gets even better. They take another leap. I don't really think that happens this year. I don't think that happens either. And maybe you have even more concerns with Zion moving forward, not only because of the injury. And I hate bringing this up just because it's such a weird topic. But yeah, the weight issue, like if this guy keeps getting bigger, you're just not going to last like that. Like it's only a matter of time until your body and your knees say, Sorry, bruh. I'm I'm piecing out. You know, I gotta I gotta go <laughs> I gotta go repair myself. Maybe those issues persist. And I get what you're saying. I, I just want to ask you on the playmaking aspect one more time to just just kind of elaborate. Like, like you just don't think that's in his head. Like you just don't think he's is he not smart enough to develop as a playmaker? You just don't think there's a willingness to to pass the ball and become a playmaker? What, what is it then? No, I don't think that at all. I think he can, at some point in his career, average like seven assists a game. As I've said before, I think he can be really good, but he's not going to be a true point guard. Like it's going to be Giannis assists. It's going to be drive and kick simple stuff, but he just is so terrifying to a defense that you have to send help at him and he's just going to find shooters. I totally think he can do that. Like he needs to get better there still, but he has overall good passing instincts. And I think he showed progression there even within this past year. But that doesn't mean that you don't need a point guard, right? Like, that's still essential. Okay. I, as long as we're on the same page on that. I, I, you asked if there were any other factors that, that I think we should touch on. There's there's two. Uh, one, I just want to flap my gums about Trey Murphy a little more. Dude, one thing that he showcased in Summer League, Carson, dude, in transition, when he is bringing the ball up the floor or whatever, dude, Trey is one of those shooters that, like, for one, off the catch— Trey doesn't need to think about pulling that thing at all, dude. He doesn't even come off the ground sometimes. It's just there, and it's wet. But the thing I like about him most is in transition when he's bringing the ball up or something, dude, he sets his feet in plants and is going up with that rock on sight. Like, Trey is not a guy that needs to set his feet. He's good, you know, like, and what I mean by that is, like, it's still like a moving shot because of his momentum, but he's he's really good at just stopping and being able to put that thing up, like, Trey's footwork has really gone on his shots as well, but but the thing that I think could swing this thing in the future, 
I think the Pelicans are building a really, really good bench for when they do become competitive. Because you have a guy like Trey, who is a knockdown three and deer. You have a guy like Josh Hart, who is a knockdown three and deer and also a sneaky good rebounder. So is Trey. Trey is also a really good cutter, as is Josh Hart. You have a guy like Herb Jones, who one day I think is going to be a really valuable asset in this rotation, not only as a 3 and deer and a cutter, but as a tertiary ball handler. He's good with the ball in his hands and out of the pick and roll, pretty decent decision maker, a dog defensively. Like, no, I don't think these things really matter this year, and I think it's going to take time to really, you know, really iron out um, the kinks of this starting lineup, because I don't think this is a good starting lineup now. Like, I don't think there's a perfect lineup alongside Zion. And again, if you, Zion is going to be your building block of the future, you need to build the perfect roster around him to compete. But I think this bench is going to be really solid for years to come because there is a wealth of talent here. Not even just these guys. Kyra Lewis Jr., even if he doesn't become a star, that's an awesome guy I want running my second unit. And there's other guys here that maybe could get better. You know, I mean, um, Jackson Hayes maybe for a big guy on that side. Najee Marshall, like... This bench is going to be really solid for years to come. You made that face. I just don't like Jackson Hayes at all. I never have. I just find him to be thoroughly unimpressive. You don't like Sideshow Bob. I don't much like Sideshow Bob. And for the eighth overall pick of the draft, not going to age very well. Not Jarrett Culver level, but honestly, maybe not far. Like, he just has an easier job because poor Jarrett, dude. He, he can't shoot. And so he's never going to be a, a, a guy who can run offense. He's just like really, really bad Evan Turner. That's really, that's really what Jarrett Culver is. So I have the Pelicans going 38 and 44. I think that maybe the general consensus is higher on them than this. But look, we saw Zion have an insane year last year. We saw B.I. do his thing. And they were still a handful of games below 500. And to me... You didn't fix the defensive issues whatsoever. Maybe you get a new culture with a new coach, but this has been a thing for multiple years for the Pels. And you didn't significantly improve the shooting issue to me. So I just don't see where they really take a leap unless it's Nikhil or Kyra or these young guys. I will shout out one more quality guy on that Pelicans bench. Not a future bench guy, but Sadoransky, that's a good addition. Like that's another quality player to have in your rotation. But overall... Another team to me in the Southwest Division that hasn't significantly improved. And by the way, when everybody else around you is getting better, that kind of means you're getting a little bit worse just because I haven't felt this way really about three consecutive teams at the top of a division up to this point. It's been painful for me because I'm like, this team has gotten so much better, but I don't have the wins to give them or whatever. These teams, I don't really feel like they've gotten better at all. I just think they're the same groups. Well, buckle up. We're probably going to go four for four. Um if we agree on this fourth team, uh, I have the Pelicans going 37 and 45, just one game off from you. I agree. I mean, they just they didn't change that much. And Zion's injury could prove pretty problematic. Like him getting a slow start, him getting back up to full health in general, him just kind of being like himself. And I just, I still think there's going to be a tough offense to generate points and a defense that's going to allow a lot of stuff. And that, Zion and B.I. are just going to will them to games. So, yeah, barring a big, you know, a big leap from these guys, I, I don't see it. All right. I'm fascinated by who you will have fourth in this division because, personally, I think it's actually pretty close between these next two teams, and I may have the unconventional pick 
But who do you have fourth? I'm guessing that you do. Uh, I've got the San Antonio Spurs here fourth. Don't get me wrong. I went between them and the Rockets. I just, I guess I'm going with the Spurs for pedigree reasons. Like, I just cannot imagine this team being super bad. <laughs> Shout out Michael Sarah. <laughs> Shout out Jonah Hill. Um, I, I, I don't think the Spurs addressed their biggest need in this offseason. They went out and did something, not foolish. I like Josh Primo as a guy, but I, I, it's another ball handler to a crowded, crowded roster of ball handlers. I mean, dude, Murray, White, uh, Lonnie Walker, like um, Josh Primo now. Like They just keep going out and getting guys who put the ball in their hands and don't really play off of other guys. Another head-scratching decision. I think Primo is going to be good, but still, the point stands. I don't think they addressed their biggest issue, and that's the shooting. Like, they got Doug McDermott. Good for you guys. Like, you still got a couple non-shooters here. What's up with the Dougie McBucket slander, bro? McDermott's cool, but it's like, dude, you need more. Like, Keldon Johnson is still a poor off-ball shooter. Derek White and DeJounte Murray are still head-scratching off-ball shooters. Jakob Pertl, not an off-ball shooter. Like... Yeah, you got Bryn Forbes, too. Good for you guys. He's in complete, you know, zero defensively. I just, I don't think they did enough to really move the needle. They lose DeMar DeRozan, too. That's a big loss. Actually, man, maybe, I don't know, somebody's going to have to step up. And I guess that guy's DeJounte Murray. I guess I'm expecting a big season from him, maybe 20-8, and 20-7, and seven, just because he's going to have the ball in his hands that much. You're going to need Derek White and DeJounte Murray to carry this offense, and that is a major load. I think they're good defensively. I think they're probably still a poor shooting team. Man, dude, I'm, I'm looking at this roster now, and I really, I don't know how this team gets to 30 wins. I think I, I think I may overshot them. I think I may have taken the Spurs down a peg. It's DeMar DeRozan. It hurts. It hurts a lot. I, I don't really see any of these young guys taking a leap, and I guess that's my biggest, my biggest issue. I don't think they have a franchise cornerstone here. I don't see it. I mean, maybe maybe Jock Landale, former Australian MVP, maybe he does it. I think they're going to be good defensively, but I think it's a slog offensively once more, dude. What, you're not a big Jock Landale guy? Atrocious take from Logan Camden. I mean, generally, I agree with you on the Spurs. That's not where I take issue. It's more on the Jock Landale take. <laughs> but shout out St. Mary's, shout out the Bay. So here's the thing with the Spurs. I looked at this roster and initially actually had them just below 30 wins. I have them at 30 now because I think there are a lot of quality players here and that cannot be denied. Like all the names you mentioned, DeJounte, Keldon Johnson, Lonnie Walker, Derek White, those guys are legitimate pros who are very solid. And Thaddeus Young, as a veteran addition to me, very valuable, just like an overall really good basketball player, Dougie McBuckets, that guy just does his job well. He's just electrifying as a pure shooter. And those guys could honestly end up being two of the three or four most refined and valuable players on this team. The issue to me is, outside of Orlando, I don't know if there's a team that has a worse best player. Like, DeMar DeRozan made this machine go offensively last year. And unfortunately... It wasn't a machine that went at a crazy high level anyways because, as you said, they just sucked shooting the ball. And they were 30th in three-pointers made. They were 24th in three-point percentage. They didn't have the kind of guys who could fully capitalize on his playmaking, on his value to the offense. 
Now you take that away, though, and addition by subtraction a little bit with the shooting, you play a Derek White more win- more minutes or whatever, you play a Dougie McBuckets more minutes, yeah, you'll shoot a better percentage from three, but you're not going to create those kind of looks. You're not going to have that kind of go-to score, and like, if DeJounte Murray scores 20 points a game, man, I'll be shocked. He progressed a lot last year, and he's a good all-around player, but he's not meant to carry an offense. He's just too weird because he doesn't have that shot from behind the arc. And the playmaking I like, I don't think it's outstanding, but it's good. Obviously, defensively, athletically, getting to the rim, all of that's fine and dandy. It's just not enough. And if you're saying, hey, this is the guys we're turning the keys of our offense over to, I'm going to say your offense sucks. Do you think DeJounte leads his team in points? Yes, I do. So do you think that the Spurs' leading scorer is going to be like 17 a night? Yes, I think 17 or 18 a night is pretty reasonable. Because I do think there's a balanced attack here. Like, this has been the thing with the Spurs since the beginning of last year. They don't have that eye-popping, insane, star, young talent right now. But I like so much of what Keldon Johnson does. I love just his instincts. He's good on the glass offensively. He's a good cutter. He's a powerful athlete. He can handle a little bit. Solid passer. He's just not a centerpiece, clearly, and he needs to shoot better than 33% from deep, so his off-ball value is higher than what it is. But I still like him. Lonnie Walker needs to be more consistent, needs to be more developed probably as a playmaker, but there are times where I look at him and think that guy's a pretty impressive scorer. But yeah, they're not the kind of guys who are ready to be essential pieces on a really good team, and they're not the kind of guys who can run offense. So... I think it's reasonable to be concerned about that. You are adding shooting. I should have mentioned Bryn Forbes, too, is back, which is great. Like, that guy's an absolute dead eye. But it's a concerning lack of dynamic offensive talent. Very, very concerning. And, like, might be up there for the worst in the Western Conference outside of the Thunder. Yeah, I, I, they might have a worse offense. The Spurs are probably going to be up there for just worst offense in the league, period. Um just because there's not a guy that you can turn to and rely on. It's going to be a, like I said, it's going to be a slog. That being said, though, I mean, I think they'll be pretty solid defensively, though. You've got a really good rim protector in Yaka Pirtle who you can just funnel and feed guys into. I think Pirtle's going to eat this year in a starting role. And what I mean by that, you know, probably 10 and 10, and 10 8 and 9, 8 and 10. You know, his scoring numbers aren't going to be crazy. He's, you know, he's just a role man and a guy who's going to put stuff up under the glass, but defensively, I, you know, I think we just see his rebounding numbers and his block totals are really high. Keldon competes defensively, even though he's a little undersized and they're going to run him at the four. I think it works. And Derek White and DeJounte Murray are two solid defensive guys who are going to work. So I, I don't think it's going to be enough. Again, I think that this offense, they're just too... <laughs> they're, just, they're just not dynamic enough offensively, and that's going to be the, you know, the pitfall of this team. But I think defensively, they're going to be all right. And then off the bench... I'm worried. I'm worried about the bench a lot. Like, bro, I genuinely, Carson, I mean this. I think I might run my offense through Thaddeus Young off the bench. I might let that man be my de facto point guard sometimes, and I just like make let that man go crazy and facilitate. Is Thaddeus Young not starting to you? Do you think they start Dougie at the four? That's what's your five? Because my five would probably be Murray, White, McDermott, Keldon, Pirtle. That makes sense. I think that it's either that or. It's Thad in there for McDermott. I understand the value of having the shooting of McDermott. I do think, though, that Thaddeus Young is a better all-around basketball player because of the playmaking 
the versatility scoring, the defense. He's just a smart guy out there who I want on my team who can do a lot of things well. But I think either option is very plausible. Uh, so I'll pose you this, though, in general, dude. One, my first question is, just do any of these young guys take a leap? Do you think that there's anybody that drastically gets better? And then I'll ask, why is that man Lonnie Walker? Okay. So, this is an interesting question. To me, the guy who has been most impressive since last season, which is kind of unfair because we don't get to see all of these guys in the offseason. We did see Kellen Johnson in the Olympics. I think that Devin Vassell looked really, really good in Summer League. And it was in a way that I didn't expect from him. Because he's not the kind of guy who you think is going to shine in a format like that just because he's so much in the conventional 3 and D mold. But I thought his pace was very impressive. Like that dude just looked like a smooth pick and roll ball handler. He was deceptive. Getting his own shot, you know, he's just got a pretty pure stroke so we can kind of get that off from wherever. So I was just impressed by that. I don't know that he's going to be a guy who put the ball in his hands a ton and say, hey, go to work, Devin, just because he doesn't have the playmaking. And I don't think that he starts on this team. And Josh Primo, I like a lot. I think that he was probably a reach, but I do think talented guy who should be able to play on or off the ball long-term, who could be a plus defender, beautiful shooter. I just am not sure that he has a big role right now. Like, he was not a top-two player at Alabama in college last year. He was 18 years old when he got drafted. Like, he's just young, and he still needs to develop, even though he does do some things that I like. So, long story short, I guess I would maybe point to Vassell, but Lonnie Walker maybe has the most intriguing skill set. I just don't know if I see it. Like, he's progressively gotten better, but I don't think anybody takes a huge leap. That's kind of the sad truth of it, and that's kind of why I don't think the Spurs team is going to be all that good. Okay, then my next question is, let's let's get into it. Do they have the worst offense in the league, and do they finish at, like, what? Are you going over or, un- or under, like, 100 points a night? Over? I mean... Over or under 110? Under? Well, that's a big difference you yeah. just took right there. Good I'm, grief. I mean... So then what, like, I don't know, dude. I think they will be the worst offense in the league. Like, I mean, who's worse? The Cavs? The Magic? The the Magic? Yeah, I would say so. Like, you want to talk about lack of established creators. Dude, Jalen Suggs is going to make this offense go. I like Jalen Suggs a lot. I wouldn't be confident that he's a better player as a rookie than DeJounte Murray is right now. Like, it could be comparable, but I also just think San Antonio has much better talent alongside him. Like, I don't think this is the worst offense in basketball. I think that they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be okay defensively too. I just think that they are lacking in, again, that guy who initiates, who makes everything go. And when you don't have that, and you also don't have like elite shooting on the wings, it's just a concerning formula. They're really, really going to Mr. Rosen. But I still think these guys can play way well together. I think if they have quality players, I think that obviously it's a good culture. They're well coached, all these things. I have them winning 30 games, though. I think that they're a bottom three team out West. And in fact, Logan, I don't have them fourth in this division. I have them last in this division. What's your prediction for the Spurs? I have them with the same record. I just have the Rockets with a, with a worse record. All right. 
I think we're ready to get into Houston Rockets talk then, Logan, unless you have any final remarks on the Spurs. So, Houston, you have them last in the division. Talk a little bit about the Rockets. The Rockets are, are super interesting, and I mean, it's just because there's going to be so many young guys getting touches. It's really going to be fun to watch. You're going to learn so much about these young guys, and if they're, you know, if, if they can last in this league, I mean, down to Usman Garuba and Josh Christopher, they're going to be getting burned in this lineup. They're going to be fun to watch. They're going to be up-tempo. KPJ is running the point. John Wall is long gone. They're going to figure out if anybody's foolish enough to try to you know trade for that contract. I don't know how you make the money work at this point. I don't know who the guy you know you trade for is, but uh, John Wall's gone. They're going to be better defensively because you have a guy like Tice now um, in with Christian Wood. They're going to hold it down for these guys who are going to want to run out in transition. And I mean... There's one thing, Carson, that I'm worried about, um, and that's that's like the how how you split the touches between KPJ and Jalen Green because part of me just wants them to hand the keys over to Jalen and let him get buckets and also you know grow as a facilitator because that's naturally going to happen when he's torching defenses. You know they're going to double him, they're going to go over screens, they're going to fight hard, and they're going to. He's going to command attention from other defenders, which is going to open up opportunities for other guys. But I get it. KPJ can run an offense competently. I'm just not. I'm just not sold on his high end as a facilitator. I mean, we saw it in stretches. He's decent out of the pick and roll. He's got that step back game. He's got a little bit of a floater. He's crafty and, you know, he can get his shots. But I just don't know if he's, he's not that explosive, you know. He's not, and he's not that dynamic of a shooter from behind the arc to where I think he commands attention from, from either space. Like, he's just good. And I don't, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if KPJ has that ceiling to, to grow as a really dynamic playmaker. And that's why I just question who you run this offense through. That being said, man, like I said, it's going to be a fun team to watch regardless. There's so much young talent here. Three and Deer, your favorite player of all time, Jay Sean Tate, um, Alperin Sengun, who honestly, bruh, I just wish they'd start the man at the four. Be gone, Daniel Tice. I just, I just want to see Sengun get some minutes. He's better at this moment, but I just, I just want the man to get his touches. So, this is interesting. Do you have anything else you want to say, or can I jump in here? No, it's KJ Martin time, too. I'm done. Very interesting. First things first, let's talk about KPJ a little bit. Because I am not of the belief that he is going to be a star in this league. However, I am of the belief that he is clearly the best perimeter initiator on this team. Even though I think Jalen Green could be a better pure scorer right now. And I think that he is, to me, a guy with a really high ceiling as a playmaker. Like, he has really good feel there. He makes some crazy impressive passes. And I think, as a scorer, the bag is there. Like, the floaters are there. As you said, the craftiness is there. All we need to see from him is more consistency from beyond the arc because he knows how to create shots there. Like, he's whipping out step backs. He's doing crazy stuff off the bounce. It's just they didn't fall for him. But that was a small sample size last year. And over a full year, I don't know. If he can hit 35% of those difficult off-the-bounce threes, and I think he's a good playmaker and a guy who can get downhill and operate out of that mid-range area because of the floater, I'm optimistic about him. And this is part of the reason why I just like the Rockets so much more maybe then is typical and why I like them a little bit more than the Spurs. 
I think they have a lot of guys who can do their roles at a high level, and I think they have guys with legitimate star traits. To me, there's nobody you point on with the Spurs and say, hey, he has star traits. KPJ has star traits. It's about consistency. Christian Wood is a borderline star in the NBA. He's an elite role man. He's an elite lob threat. He's a guy who shoots 37% from deep. He's a legitimate rim protector, a phenomenal athlete. He can put the ball on the floor. He can put up a floater. He was 21-10 and 10 last year, really efficiently. One of the other things that was interesting to me is I don't think that they start him alongside a center. I think that he's their five. I think that he showed last year he's good enough defensively to do that, and I wouldn't want to restrict this team as far as floor spacing goes when you're not positive about the kind of shooting value that you're going to get. And I just think that Daniel Tice can be a really, really good backup big, but I don't know that he's one of the five best players on this team at all. You don't start them together. I think that Christian Wood has shown that he can be a center. Well, No, I mean Wood at the five and Tice at the four. No, I don't like that. Well, then who are you starting at the four? I would start Jay Sean Tate, KJ Martin, whoever you think is the three or the four between the two of them. I think that they can more than survive defensively. I think it's probably Jay Sean, honestly. And boy, do I love Jay Sean Tate. I didn't, I didn't like that you referred to him as a 3 and D guy, Logan. He's so much more. He's so much more. He's a great defender. He has such natural, incredibly natural, really, ball handling and playmaking, given the fact that this guy was undrafted, Logan, and at his size. And it's not it's nothing crazy. It's not going to make you say, oh, wow, this guy's going to be a star. But it's, hey, Swiss Army knife much? The guy can do everything. So, like, that's the thing. He makes winning plays. On the wings, flat out. K.J. Martin is competitive. He's athletic. If he can shoot consistently, he's a good guy on the glass. He's going to compete. He makes winning plays too. Eric Gordon, if he is just what he should be and shoots 36% from deep, that's a very legit starting caliber wing who can bully people physically, who can fill it up as a score and give you 15 plus a game starting or coming off the bench. I think Jalen Green can score close to 20 a game immediately. As I've said, I think he has the most impressive scoring skill set of any prospect from the perimeter since Brandon Ingram. Could even be better than that. Higher upside athletically, has arguably shown more depth just in his pure bag, his handle, things like that. You have another legitimate rotation wing in Daniel House. Josh Christopher maybe still needs to progress, but he's competitive. He's a good athlete. He's going to play both ends of the floor. He's confident. DJ Augustine is a backup point guard I like. Boom. What do I not like about this team? There are things, sure. They don't have a crazy established star. You're relying a lot from young guys who I like a lot, but you know what? I'm an optimist. And when I see young guys and I see shades of things, I tend to believe in that and bet on that. And we need to see it over 82 games. And maybe it's presumptive thinking that all these things are going to go right. I just like it. I just like the upside more. I like the personnel. I feel like they're a team that can actually have an identity and that over a full year, they can find what really works for them. Because last year, it was kind of just, who are the talents who we like? Do we like Jay Sean Tate? Do we like KJ Martin? Do we like Kevin Porter Jr.? But they kind of just threw them into the fire and said, hey, go play basketball. This year, even though they're still going to be in a rebuild mode with an offseason, with this roster that has now been assembled to their liking, I feel like there's room for more growth there. And defensively, maybe it won't be the prettiest, but they have guys who can defend. Offensively, again, I'm not sure that I love the shooting, but they have guys who do a lot of things well. And so I'm just going to bet on this. I just think it's more exciting. They're more talented than the Spurs. And again, 
They have what they need on the wings. They have their very legitimate perimeter creator, which the Spurs don't, which the Spurs don't have. They have their star guy, their elite interior presence, which the Spurs don't have. And that, to me, is the separator. My brain's, like, overheating because you're making too good of an argument here. Like, I kind of want to give them 30 and 52 because I, I, I think you're right. I think straight up, just their two units are just better completely offensively than in San, than San Antonio. And what am I going to bet on over an 82-game season? Well, I'm definitely going to bet on that offense more because I think you're right. Like, if I was running the Rockets, it would be KPJ, Jalen Green, Jay Sean Tate, KJ Martin, and then I'd run Christian Wood because then not only do you have two really good role men in KJ and Wood who you can throw lobs to, Wood can space the floor. You can just open up the runway for KJ. Jay Sean Tate's going to space the floor and not need the ball in his hands. Green and KPJ are going to be really dynamic with the rock in their hands, going to open stuff up for other guys and serve buckets on their own. And then the second unit, you've got Augustin, you've got Gordon, you've got Daniel House, Sengun, and Tice. I just straight up, I like both of those units more than I like either of the Spurs units. So you may have gotten me, Carson. You may have gotten me, bro. I think I'm definitely going to bump them up to the same record as San Antonio at a minimum, and I may bump the Spurs down a couple wins. Good job. You you got me, bro. You sold me. I appreciate it, man. And I do think that this is bold, by the way. I have them winning 31 games, which isn't a crazy amount, but it is a lot for a team this young. And I will say the shooting is a concern. They were 33.9% from deep last year, and you theoretically could be starting three kind of suspect shooters, like Jay Sean Tate was not great there last year. KJ Martin was not great there and doesn't really prefer to just put up volume threes. Kevin Porter Jr. shot 20-something percent from deep last year. So, yeah, that's not a sure thing. But they have the guys off the bench who I know can do that. Eric Gordon, Daniel House. And, again, I just like the talent. I like the talent a lot. And I think that they have guys who compete and who, for their age, are actually exceptionally equipped to go out there and play meaningful basketball pretty well. I think that what most people are going to be intrigued by here is Jalen Green because he's the household name, even though he could be their third best player this year, in my opinion. Like, that's not unreasonable. He's not going to be a Cade Cunningham where it's, hey, Jalen, you have to be everything. I think he's going to get buckets. Again, I don't know where he lacks as a score. Finishing, insanely dynamic, athletically ridiculous. Handle is there. Creativity is there. Shot making off the dribble from the perimeter is there. Do you think it's unreasonable to say he could score around 20 points per game this year? That's bold, bro. That is really bold. If KPJ can command enough attention, I can see it. Because it's going to take a lot of catch-and-shoot attempts, too, I think. Because, like... Carson, you're the guy who introduced me to the idea that rookie guards are, you know, just the... Not even the idea, the, the kind of fundamental rule of Carson Brebber's basketball ideology, that rookie guards are, are inefficient. And it's true. So, like, I don't know, man. He's going to have to be stupid efficient to put up 20 a night. He's also just going to have to be nasty, man. That's that's a lot to expect out of a rookie. I think it is bold. I think if you put him at 17 or 18, that's a lot more realistic, but I like the boldness of it. Would you bet on it? Would you bet he puts up 20 a night his rookie year? Probably not. I mean, realistically, I'm taking the under on that, but I think 18 a game is an expectation, and I think close to 20 is possible. Do you think he's the most talented scorer that you've ever seen you know, this young. Very arguably. 
as far as my expectation coming into the year, like Luca came out and got buckets immediately. I mean, again, if we're talking about regardless of position, Zion was immediately scoring 20-something a game crazy efficiently. But the development of his all-around skill set is absurd. So I would probably say yes. And I just think he and Cade are going to have crazy rookie years. And by the way, I don't even think that they're the two best players in this draft long-term because if you watch enough nerds, as you know, I feel about Evan Mobley. But, like, it's going to be a great rookie of the year race. I think Cade wins it because I think he's more developed as a playmaker. I think he's going to have more opportunity. But I think Jalen Green is going to be really outstanding. You think he leads the Rockets in scoring? No. I think Christian Wood leads the Rockets in scoring. I mean, he's the, he's their best player. He's clearly their best player. Everybody else to me, it's, hey— I like your talent a lot. What can you do? I have no questions about Christian Wood. The only question is, can he get even better from here? And I don't think we need to focus ourselves with that question because, hey, we don't need to be critical of him, okay? He's an amazing story. He's a stud, and he excels at a number of things on the basketball court. So, yeah, he's a much better player than anybody the Spurs have. I think KPJ could be a better player than anybody the Spurs have. And I think Jalen Green could be a better scorer and should be a better scorer than anybody the Spurs have. And I like their depth more. Like, maybe one win isn't a big enough gap here between the two. I just, again, I'm worried about the shooting. I'm worried about the experience. I'm worried about the defense. All these things because they're super, super, super young. But they are talented. And I don't think, Logan, we can sit here after we spent all this time last year, even as they were going down the gutter, marching towards the worst record in basketball, we still spent all this time talking about, hey, how much we love these individual pieces. Now they have a full season of basketball. They're healthy. They have better players around them. And I just think they're going to win more games. So again, I have them 31 and 51. And I'm not sure the exact seeding. I think that that will end up being the 13 seed probably. But again, I don't know you guys any official answers yet. What's your official record prediction for the Rockets? And has it changed since we began this conversation? Yeah, I was going to put them at 27. And I think... Injuries are obviously going to come into play with, with standings here, too. And I think if Wood, KPJ, or Green go down, you probably see a drastic drop. But you got me, bro. I'm going to take the Spurs. I'm going to flip them. I'm going to have the Spurs go 27 and 55, and I'm going to have the Rockets go 30 and 52. They're just more talented. And, like, I'm not going to bet on the less talented team, bro. The Spurs are, like, objectively... Way worse. Also, bro, Spurs have no future. It's time to hit the panic button, bro. Yeah. If you're a Spurs fan right now, you're really hoping Luka Samanich comes around at some point. <laughs> and you're hoping that Josh Primo is a freak. What, Zach Collins comes back and puts up 20 a night? Yeah, Zach Collins, honestly, kind of an interesting addition to San Antonio if he were to play more than 15 games, which sadly... He very well may not. He's a guy who adds some depth to that group, though. But overall, the Spurs, man, it's just like the depth has defined them. I don't like the depth quite as much this year. You lost not just DeRozan, but, of course, Rudy Gay, Patty Mills, like guys who have been fundamentally just really good all-around players. And, yeah, they're just lacking in star power. So give me the Rockets over them. And, again, maybe this is a lot of time spent talking about how bold it is for a team to win 31 games. But I think the Rockets are just better than people are expecting. And honestly, I am tremendously excited to watch them play basketball. And I will also say, the John Wall dynamic is fascinating. Like, 
he seems to have a super positive relationship with the organization. Like, he's going to be at every game. His priority, he says right now, is Houston and supporting the guys. And they are mutually just like, yeah, he doesn't have to play. Like, that's interesting. No, it's genius. Thank you, John. How else do you boost your own trade value? You don't do it by not being a team guy. Like, this is, I'm not saying, it's still going to be a pitch of a contract to move because you got to make the salaries match. But what a good look. Even when this guy isn't playing, even when he's not getting minutes, he still wants to support the team. Like, I think that can only help him in potentially getting moved. Fair point. Give me KPJ for 18 and 8 this year. All right. That's my prediction. Probably not super efficiently, but I'm a believer in the talent, man. And I've said previously that I think his long term role is like maybe as one of the best sixth men in basketball. And I still think that's probably true in a winning situation if you're trying to go out there and get a title. That's just not what the Rockets are trying to do. And I'm optimistic. I want to see that shot be more consistent. I don't think it's broken. And if he does that, dude, just chalk me up as a Rockets believer. All right? Chalk me up as a Rockets believer. That's my final stance. So there you have it. The Southwest Division, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've enjoyed. Maybe not the winningest division in all of basketball this year. In fact, probably going to have one of the worst collective records based on our predictions here. But still, rich with talent, rich with fun stuff to talk about. So, as always, hope you've enjoyed. If you have... We've got plenty of more Nerd Sesh content. You can stick around on our YouTube channel, see that we do several shows like this a week. A couple of them are live. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to have even one additional show because we have to wrap up our NBA preview content while also addressing what's going on in the NFL right now. So you can stay tuned in for all of that. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your audio content. The links to all that will be in the description. You can also see on our YouTube channel here, we do video breakdown content, video essays, there will be one for you guys soon, tomorrow or the next day, that being Thursday or Friday, from yours truly that I am very, very excited about. So you can look for all that. You can follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram and TikTok are both at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 
6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.